Who thinks something wild is going to happen with the title of this sermon? Uh, It's been said, among polite company, to never discuss religion, politics, or sex. Since we're at church, and I'm a preacher, uh, religion is inherently with us. Although I won't be discussing politics this morning, I will be discussing sex. Uh, We're beginning a two-week mini-series entitled Seduction, Sex, and Silence. And at the end, I hope I go about it well enough that you'll still think that I am polite enough to invite Aaron and I out to dinner, uh, where I promise we will abide by your expectations as long as you are paying the bill. Sex is used inexhaustibly, like it never stops, in entertainment and in advertising. Sex has been the cornerstone of much of this year's most consistent media coverage. Same-sex marriage, the Bruce Jenner sex change, the Bill Cosby sex assault scandal. And that's what I was doing when I was jogging my mind. And then this week, sure enough, the Josh Duggar sex assault scandal. Sex is present all throughout the scriptures, and the scripture provides insight into its creation, its intention, its meaning, and its mystery. That is to say, the scriptures speak holistically about sex. Holistically. Therefore, the church's voice on sex should not be silent should not be settled, should not be subtle or stifled, especially in a day and age when sex is treated in such a singular fashion. As I mentioned, this morning we begin a two-week series entitled Seduction, Sex, and Silence. And if you're joining us by podcast or app, uh, my name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City Church. And on behalf of of City, uh, we'd like to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. Uh, the text we're focusing on is 2 Samuel chapter 11. If y'all who brought a Bible with you or who have your cell phone uh, with a Bible app on it, you can go ahead and go there. As you go there, I'm sure that you're going to say, well, I'm, I'm familiar with this because of its place. Or once you read some names or characters, you'll say, well, I'm familiar with this because of the people in this part of Scripture. And if that's the case, uh, what I want all of us to gain this morning is some additional perspective. We may be familiar with this text because of its place. We may be familiar with this text because of its people. But what I want us to gain is some perspective. So to proceed, we'll read the entire chapter. And that's more than some of y'all have read all week. I realize that. This is your little quiet time kudos part. Uh, To proceed, we'll read the entire chapter. And that's not to fill up time or because I'm lacking things to say. If you know me, you know that's not something that I struggle with. I want to read the chapter in full because I fear that its familiarity will be a reason for plenty of us to kind of check out and say, I already know about this. I'm not going to pay him. No mind. I want it to be fresh, specifically for those of you who think that it's familiar. So for anyone who has a Bible, let's read along with me. You can have a book in your lap. You can have a cell phone in your hand or the text will be up on the screen. Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. 
From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the place, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, have you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men and my company are in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fiercest fighting is. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out, And fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Did you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archer shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. (sighs) This infamous narrative is well known, even to those who have zero knowledge of the Bible. It's not uncommon for the narrative of David and Bathsheba just to be simplified into a story about sex. Specifically, the wrong kind of sex. The bad kind of sex. And while we can certainly derive warning from this text, it's not as simple as sex. 
Second Samuel is a tornado of tragedy, a tornado of tragedy, neglect, deception, adultery, murder, and most notably, usury. David uses his army and his army's commander, Joab, to fight his war while he stays home. David uses his first, the gopher, to find out about Bathsheba. David uses his multiple messengers to get, retrieve Bathsheba. David uses Bathsheba for his pleasure. David uses Joab again to retrieve Uriah. David tries to use Uriah twice to cover up his conception with Bathsheba. Then David uses Uriah to carry his own death certificate back to Joab. And then uses Joab to murder Uriah. David uses Uriah's death as a means to marry Bathsheba, again seeking to cover up his transgressions. David uses his power. He uses his authority. He uses his servants. He uses his citizens. David uses flattery, persuasion, drunkenness, deceit, and the list goes on. 2 Samuel 11 is a tornado of tragedy. We'll consider this text this morning, this narrative, through the classic elements of a narrative. We could apply this lens to other stories. Exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and conclusion. So we'll start with the exposition. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. We see that David is home. He stayed home. The text clearly indicates that he should be at war. It's springtime. The winter weather has melted off. It's gone away. It's good conditions for war. David's home, and the text indicates he should be elsewhere. Moving quickly into the rising action, verses 2 through 5. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. One evening is actually one late afternoon. It's not evening as we think of evening. Meaning that he slept through the middle of the afternoon. He slept through the daytime. Maybe he took an afternoon nap, or he was just laying in his bed, scrolling Instagram, like a lot of y'all did this morning. Either way, the implication is that he had nothing but time on his hands, right? Which is quite a luxury to have, especially because his army, his commander, his men are out in the battlefield fighting. What a luxurious option. From the roof, he sees a beautiful woman bathing. The woman, again, was very beautiful. And at this point, It's still all good. It's like the calm before the storm. Verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her. Oh boy, here we go. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Come on, David, take heed. Don't do it. Your boy's looking out for you. He kind of gives you some cultural clarification. He says, hey, this is the daughter of of Eliam. And in that culture, women were known by their fathers. But also, he gives him a a relational reminder. That's Uriah's wife. Idiot. She's married. Don't do it. Then, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then, she went back home. 
I have two observations about this portion of the text. First, we'll talk about uh, King David, and next we'll talk about Bathsheba. Again, this is the rising action. David is obviously the main character. We've seen that through the full portion, but we've also seen that right here. David is the initiator and the instigator of all of the activity. Not only is David a man, but he is the man. David is that dude. A few quick reminders about who David is. He's the king, right? Not just the manager. No disrespect to managers. Not just the boss, not the CEO, or even the president. He is the king. We don't really comprehend kings in that way because of our government or structure. Uh, he's the king chosen by God as a boy. He's long been destined for this role. The youngest of Jesse's eight sons. As God passed by the older, stronger, more qualified sons, the Lord told Samuel the prophet, don't look at their appearance or how tall they are because I've rejected them. David, who although he was disqualified by men based on his appearance, was qualified by God because God saw into his heart. Can you imagine the kind of man that David must have been if God chose him after seeing into his heart? A lot of days I don't want to see into my own heart, right? So I brush my teeth real quick, get going onto my own activity. And we all do that. Cover up the realities that are haunting us about who we are. So the Lord sees into David's heart and he chooses him. What a man he must have been. He's the king. David is the giant slayer. Again, this is pretty well known in church circles. David, who again is a boy, said of Goliath, the terrifying man of war, nine, ten feet tall. If this is really true, if the scripture is actually true, can you imagine a dude nine or ten feet tall? Someone of the structure and the shape of Goliath. The boy, David, says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And even after he was told to shut up and sit down by the military men, he rebuttals with a reminder that God had been with him in the fields as he killed a lion and as he killed a bear who sought to kill the sheep that he was looking over. David's the giant slayer. And he's the man after God's own heart. Maybe his most uh, f- uh, well-known claim to fame. As Paul wrote in Acts 13.22, God testified concerning him. If God got onto his own bench of law, what would he testify about you? What would he testify about me? God testified concerning David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. He's the man after God's own heart. And what a man he must have been. Which begs the question to be asked, especially of lesser men like myself. How can such a man of caliber commit such evil? How can that happen? And the answer is the first word in our slide. uh, Seduction. The answer is seduction. How can David commit such evil? Seduction. James gives us the clearest insight into understanding uh, seduction. 
Chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. We'll have the slide pop up here. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed or seduced. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. David's response to Bathsheba is the quintessential example of this equation, of this text. We see David's evil desire in his response to seeing Bathsheba. The fact that she was bathing and he saw her was coincidental. It just happened. Stuff happens, right? Like the bumper sticker says. The fact that she was bathing and he saw her was coincidental. There's much commentary that suggests otherwise, that says it wasn't coincidence. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I don't buy it. David's desire is what drove this beyond coincidence. David's desire seduces him. David sends his boy to find out about Bathsheba. His boy does his job, comes back to give David the rundown, tries to look out for him. But David pushes past that warning anyway, sends his messengers to get Bathsheba. They get her. She came. He lied with her. Sleeps with her. Seduction and sex. Tempted by his own evil desire and enticed. Seduced. Desire is conceived. Sin is born. David was a great man. But as a pastor uh, who I listen to often, Alistair Begg, says, The best of men are men at best. David was a great man. But the best of men are men at best. David was tempted. You will be tempted. I will be tempted. Temptation, seduction, is not sin. Sin is in our response. Sin is in our revelry. Sin is in our reaction to seduction. Think about this. Adam and Eve did not sin when Satan sought to seduce them. At that point, sin didn't happen. They sinned when they chose seduction over submission. Seduction does not sin. For David, temptation seduced him to have sex with a married woman. That may or may not be the case for you or for me. But don't be foolish enough to think that responding, reveling, or reacting to sin can't look like a million different things. Uh, Don't simplify it into adultery and start patting yourself on the back. It can look like a million other things. My second observation is regarding Bathsheba. And this might be kind of a new perspective. I had to talk with Jeff several times about this. Uh, But here's my observation regarding Bathsheba. Much has been made of Bathsheba historically. If you Google images, Bathsheba, Google images, uh, you'll see that classic art gives visualization to the voice that Bathsheba knew what she was doing. If you look at Rembrandt, Bathsheba looks real sexy. If you just Google images of Bathsheba, it sure looks like the same voice that I've always heard, the visualization of the voice that Bathsheba knew what she was doing. Bathing. Bathing of all things. On the roof, when the sun was setting. The roof that she knew was within the king's gaze. She knew she was alone because her husband was off at battle. She knew what she was doing, so they say. 
And I would say, yeah, she knew what she was doing. And so do we. Because the text clearly says it. She was bathing to purify or cleanse herself from her menstrual cycle, her monthly uncleanness. Let me get a little risque real quick. All right. If there's a woman in your life, okay, who wouldn't slap you in the mouth if you asked her this question, this is the question I want you to ask her. Ask her if she feels sexy when she gets off of her period. I know that's kind of a risque thing to say in church. I say it on purpose. Next week, I'll look out for those of you who have black eyes to see if you took my advice or not. So, we know that she was bathing. We know that she was bathing, purifying herself. And beyond this, you know what else I bet she knew? I bet she knew that she was not only alone because her husband was off fighting the king's war, but I bet she also knew that she was alone because surely the king would also be off fighting his own war because it was spring when kings go off to war. My concern is that the traditional take, whether in art or commentary, is from men and could include some subtle, if not overt, sexism regarding Bathsheba, female bashing, in essence, in line with Adam's response to his irresponsibility in the garden. What did Adam say to God? This woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and then I ate it. Often, women are warned by Bathsheba about modesty, right? Y'all have heard this, right? Haven't you? Maybe you were thinking that was the sermon I was going to give, so now you're like, I don't know where I am or what's going on. So, women are warned by Bathsheba about modesty. They need to be aware because their irresponsibility in this regard is the very source of sexual struggle for men. So the message goes this way. The female body is poison and a woman is its prisoner. It's very common, very normal. Does that seem sexist to anyone else other than me? I'm not suggesting that modesty is invalid. And I'm not saying that modesty doesn't matter or that it should be disregarded. In fact, the women in my life know that I encourage it. But men, specifically Christian men, what happened to the call issued by Paul to Timothy to treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity? What happened to that, fellas? Men, do you know that treating women with purity can alleviate that poison that is so prevalent, that their body is poison, and can liberate from that prison that they feel trapped in their bodies because they're poison. That's not a one-way road. I just added this note as I was going over the sermon in the back. That's not a one-way road. When I was in college at the University of Cincinnati, Cincinnati, what up? Uh, just a month or so after I'd become a Christian, uh, I met four girls who are my age, I refer to them to this day. If you talk to me long enough, you'll hear me talk about them. I refer to them as the four seasons. To this day, the four seasons uh, and their husbands, their spouses, our dear friends of Aaron and I, we see them as often as we can. They're kind of spread out all over the country. But they were Christians, and they discipled me. They taught me about who Jesus was and what life in Jesus looked like. They treated me with purity which helped cleanse the poison 
uh, in the prison of seduction, sex, and silence that I've been living in. That's not a one-way road. Followers of Jesus treat one another with absolute purity to help alleviate poison and liberate from prison. And when you start to cry, you can talk loud and push past it. So that's what I just did. Uh, And moving into Bathsheba's only comments in the text. It's so interesting that there's so many ideas and thoughts and notions and suggestions about who Bathsheba is. This is the only thing that she says in the whole entire text. Rising action, verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. These are Bathsheba's only words. The woman who was used by David. I'm sure there are women who will hear this, that have been in the same circumstance, used by a man, and dealt the reality uh, that is immense of an unexpected pregnancy. Moving into the climax, verses 6 through 25. We're going to read it again with some additional commentary on it, uh, so hold on to your seats. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David made small talk and asked him about really meaningless Things consider the whole situation. How's Joab? How are the soldiers doing? How's the war going? Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. A gift. David sent him a gift. The King James Version translates gift as a mess of meat. So I wouldn't have been interested in that gift. Jeff would have been very interested in that gift, but I'd have said, No, thank you. A mess of meat. In modern translation, an expensive romantic dinner for two. David wants Uriah to go home and enjoy a shower, supper, and sex. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home, Uriah? Go home, Roger. Anyone get that reference? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? Do you see this man, Uriah? As surely as you live, David, I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, all right, it's all good. Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation... So stay and now come kick it with us. Uriah ate and drank and David made him drunk, hoping that alcohol would help him absolve his wrongdoing by eroding Uriah's ethics. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home and I wonder if that dude was just too drunk to make it back to the house. But anyway, he slept on the mat outside of the palace. In the morning, David writes a letter to Joab, gives it to Uriah, and sends it with him back to the field. Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. Can you imagine Joab getting that letter from his king, who he serves, who he's trusted, setting up his own man to be murdered? So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king the account of this battle, the king's anger may flare up. 
And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobosheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, because, David, you're an idiot. Joab did this so that he could send us back here to tell you, moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. The messenger set out. When he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us, came out against us in the open. We drove them back to the entrance of the city gates. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall. And some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Hey man, it's going to be okay. We all make mistakes. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Like Joab needed to be encouraged. He was doing what he was told. Falling action here at verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. I was intrigued by that word mourned, so I kind of did some study on it. Mourned is the Hebrew safad, to wail. I said, okay, well, where else has that been used in the scripture? It was used in Genesis when Abraham mourned the death of his wife, Sarah. Many say that Bathsheba was an accomplice in adultery. And therefore, an accomplice in the death of her husband. Does that kind of a woman mourn, wail, safad, the death of her husband? The conclusion here at verse 27, not the conclusion of the sermon now, don't get too excited, but the conclusion of the text. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing, singular, that David had done displeased the Lord. At the conclusion of 2 Samuel 11, David may think that he's scot-free, right? That seduction and sex can just end in silence. And that silence is the perfect prescription for his problems. I'm confident uh, that that's the exact scenario of someone who is hearing this. Hoping that silence is the perfect prescription for your problems. Next week we'll see if that's the case. uh, But let's work towards this week's conclusion. From the outset... My objective was for all of us to gain additional perspective on this otherwise familiar account. Again, the standard treatment of David and Bathsheba is simply about sex, the wrong or bad kind of sex. When that's how this text is treated, the principles follow. Men don't lust. Women don't make men lust. And if you do, then the bad things are going to happen. And you don't want bad things to happen because bad things are bad. And you know what? That's bad. In that, we gain nothing more than a lesson in morality. And check this out. The gospel is not about morality. Every week we set out these banners over here on the sides. I want to draw your attention to one that says unlearn. Unlearn. Unlearning is a process. We have to do the hard work 
of identifying what we have learned and be willing to unlearn that so that we're able to learn new information, different information, true information, which can be very, very challenging, especially if we have carried assumptions with us for years or decades and built our life upon those things. So this may be an opportunity for you to unlearn two things. Number one, morality does not save. Morality does not save. Morality is not the requirement of God. Morality is not the call of Jesus. And morality is not the gospel. I'm sure this sermon leaves some of you feeling very self-confident. Saying, I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. Well, I have. And I would suggest that you have as well. Because Jesus likens hate in one's heart to murder. And Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if you try to explain that away, right? Say, oh no, there's not hate in my heart. There's no lust in my heart. I would encourage you to remember what we heard about God's choice of David to be king. That God does not look or see as humans see. Humans look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks into the heart. Into the heart that has committed adultery, even if you haven't in your choices. Into the heart that has committed murder, even if you haven't in your choices. Morality does not save us, even for the few of us, excluding myself, uh, whose actions and behaviors are so moral that we disregard the inherent wickedness of our hearts that condemns us. That's number one. Morality is not the gospel. Morality cannot save. Number two, the man of God is not the God-man. The man of God is not the God-man. David was king momentarily. Jesus is king, eternal. The man of God is not the God-man. David, the one who mastered giants, yet was unable to master himself. Jesus, the one who is able to empathize with our weakness because he has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin mastering himself. The man of God is not the God-man. David, the seducer of the bride of another man who he then murdered. Jesus, the servant of his bride, the church, whom he is then murdered for. The man of God is not the God-man. David, deceiver and murderer. Jesus, of whom it is written, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The man of God is not the God-man. David, user of his power, prestige, prominence, for his own temporal pleasure. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself like a servant and humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The man of God is not the God-man. You see, we must unlearn that morality 
does not save and that the man of God is not the God-man. Only the God-man can save by that very death on a cross that I just mentioned. For salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The very name of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the God-man. There is only one man to worship. There is only one man worthy of your worship. The man Jesus, the God-man. And I wonder as you look at another banner that we have over here, the word believe. I wonder what you believe coming to church this morning. I wonder if you believe that your morality, your goodness, your cleanliness, your actions before God, your not wrong choices before God, merits something to you. My friends, it doesn't. And it can deceive, deceive, deceive. Morality cannot save. And lastly, the man of God, and I hesitate even using myself as an example, is not the God man. We make so much of our leaders. Jeff and I really live in a weird place. Uh, We're regular people. But when you get up and you preach and you at least sound like you know what you're talking about, uh, and you lead a church, you're treated in a way that is not necessarily human. And so we make much of our leaders. We live in a culture uh, of celebrity. And so we do that to spiritual leaders as well, men of God. If you trust me for long enough, I will fail you. If you trust Jeff long enough, he will fail you. Wives, if you trust your husbands. Husband, if you trust your wives. Friends, if you trust one another. Brothers, sisters, if you trust one another. Long enough, people will fail you. The best of men are men at best. The man of God is not the God man. The other banner I want to call your attention to is the word believe. There's only one man to worship. The man, Jesus, the God man. He alone, by his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his soon coming return, he alone has the power to save. I wonder, have you believed in the God man?